you want to turn with me in your copy of Scripture to Ephesians chapter 2, we'll be looking there this morning to God's Word. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So as many of you know, we're in a series on what we call the five solas. The five solas, the word sola is Latin for alone. It doesn't sound as good to say the five alones, okay? So we say the five solas, it makes us sound smart. But the five solas were five principles that came out of the Reformation. And we've been looking at those. And the five solas are sola scriptura, scripture alone, Christ alone. We'll be looking this morning at the doctrine of grace alone, salvation by grace alone, faith alone, and the glory of God alone. And, excuse me, these came out of the Protestant Reformation and in many ways are very foundational to what, all we, what we all believe as Protestants, as people that are not Roman Catholic. This really defines what we believe. We looked first at Scripture alone. We saw that Scripture alone reveals salvation, right? Nature is great and wonderful, but it cannot reveal to us God's plan of redemption that's only found in Scripture. We looked last week at Christ alone, that Christ alone is the only Savior of sinners. He's the unique Savior. He's the one mediator between God and man. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we turn this morning to look at the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, solia gratia, we're really drilling down to the very foundation in many ways. What is the foundation of this salvation that's revealed in Scripture? Thank you revealed in Scripture, that's found in Christ alone, what is the bedrock of this redemption based on, right? It's revealed in Scripture, it's found in Christ alone, but what determines upon whom this salvation rests? Who receives this salvation? And maybe the more specific question this morning is, is this salvation revealed in Scripture, found in Christ, is it conditional? Is it conditional? Is it based in any way upon us, upon man, upon our efforts and our obedience? Did those that receive God's grace, did they do something to earn his favor? Did they do something to earn his grace? Were there good deeds that they did that merited this salvation that's revealed in Scripture? Were they smarter than other people so that they received God's grace? Was there foreseen faith in them that caused God to look upon them in favor? What is this salvation based upon? That's really the question that we're asking this morning. And if it is based on grace, and if you have to have grace in order to be saved, Where do you go to get this grace? Where does this grace come from? From where do you get it? And maybe this morning, a specific question is, how do you keep that grace? How do you maintain the grace that is given in Christ? Is it based on us, or is it based on the work of God? And so what we're going to see this morning is that Scripture teaches very clearly that salvation is by grace, and grace alone. (laughs) Salvation is by grace and by grace alone, not by our works, not by our efforts, not by our wisdom, not by our riches, not by our power or intelligence or our merit or foreseen faith, but it is based on grace 
and grace alone. The grace of God alone revealed in the person of Christ alone. And this salvation does not first and foremost begin with us, but the eternal, unconditional, never-ending, never-ceasing, sovereign grace of God. And this grace is not only the source and origin of our salvation, but it is the sustaining, keeping power that preserves us to the end, motivates our good works, is the bedrock of our salvation, the foundation of God's covenant of grace, and the great leveler of all human pride and boasting. That's where we're going to look at this morning, okay? So that's a big topic. Let's not waste any more time. Let's read our passage this morning. I'll pray for us, and then we will look to God's holy word. This is the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you thanking you for your word that reveals to us our great need this morning our great need for the grace of God, that apart from your grace and your mercy, we are without hope in this world. And so we thank you for revealing your grace to us in your word and in Christ. And we pray this morning that as we reflect on and contemplate the grace that you have for us, your people, that we would be strengthened this morning, that by the power of your spirit, you would open the eyes of our hearts to see the depths and the riches of the grace of God and that we would um, come to rest in the gospel alone this morning. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So in this epistle, um, Ephesians, in the first chapter where we read a little bit this morning, we see Paul is expounding. It's actually really almost one big run-on sentence. He's expounding the spiritual blessings that the believer has in Christ. 
the great manifold spiritual blessings that are for God's people in Christ. And that leads him to this prayer of thanksgiving, thanking the God of all mercy for what he has done in the person and work of Christ. And he begins in verse 19 of chapter 1, talking about what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Saving us by his grace, this is what the Lord Jesus has done. In his work of redemption, the triune God has accomplished redemption for his people and is applying it by the power of the Spirit. And it's all based on this salvation that has come by grace. We can be done, right? That's the end of the sermon. No, we got to dig a little bit deeper. And so we're going to look at four different things this morning. And the first thing we're going to look at, and it's very important that we do this this morning, the first thing we're going to look at is the definition of grace. The definition of grace. What is grace? We talk about grace a lot, and we could even say, I'm saved by grace. But I was reading one book this week, and he said, to say you're saved by grace is really not to say much. Because almost every Christian believes in some sense they're saved by grace. But is it grace and grace alone? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So we're going to look at the definition of grace. That grace in our day is often defined as a sort of sentimental gesture, right? You think about, you can, you know, if you're having an interaction with someone, just give him grace. We kind of use it in a sort of worldly, flippant way, a sort of passive tendency, and we can kind of project this back onto God, where he sort of overlooks our sin. It's kind of like a negligent parent that doesn't discipline a disobedient child, just kind of leaves them to their sin, turns a blind eye to human rebellion, a free pass to do whatever we want. This is how some people would define grace. But what is grace? Is that what grace is? It is, is a free pass to do whatever we want. There are other beliefs that would define grace as a substance that's infused into us, right? At the beginning of our Christian life, a sort of jump start that gets our faith started, and in combination with our works, that's how we merit salvation. Grace is at the beginning, but then it's up to you to complete the race. Others would say that, that grace is sort of an end validation of our works. If you've ever read the Book of Mormon, it says you've been saved by grace. Sounds pretty good, right? Everybody believes we've been saved by grace after all you can do. It's this sort of fill-in-the-gap kind of grace that you do the work, you do everything you can, and then grace will sort of fill in the gaps. But I think this morning, what's the most prevalent and common view of grace is that grace is unmerited favor. Grace is unmerited favor. God extending his grace, even though we didn't deserve it, God's unmerited favor. And while we believe this is certainly true, as we look to our text this morning, I think we're going to see that this does not give us the full picture, the full definition of grace, that as we look to Scripture and the riches and depths of God's grace, we see that grace is not just receiving something we did not deserve or something we did not earn, but it is actually us receiving the opposite of what our sin and rebellion deserved. It's not just unmerited favor, it's actually demerited favor. 
that grace is not just God's favor in the absence of our works, in the absence of our merit, as if we were sort of morally neutral creatures, but is actually his infinite and inexhaustible love in the face of our sin and rebellion. That is what grace is. And we can see that in Ephesians chapter 2, that the context of God's grace as we looked here in Ephesians chapter 2, is not that we were morally neutral image bearers that God decided to extend favor towards, just sort of walking around indifferent. What does Paul say? No, (laughs) we were morally bankrupt, spiritually dead sinners that hated God, that had rebelled against him and had not earned life, but had actually earned the wages of death that Paul here describes the state of man in what we call the state of sin. This is the fallen human condition, the state of mankind after the fall into sin in Genesis chapter 3. And as we read this morning, it's not a very pretty picture. It's not a very pretty picture. Mankind, far from being neutral, is dead in their trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, that's found in verse 1. Verse 2, following Satan and all those that are influenced by him. Verse 3, living according to the passions of our flesh, doing whatever our flesh desired, body and mind, and we're by our sinful nature deserving of God's just wrath. This is the fallen state of mankind in Adam. And it's a pretty bleak picture if we were to just finish at verse chapter, verse 3. But it is in this context that we can see the grace of God most clearly. It is against this dark backdrop that the brightness and glory of God's grace is shown forth. That in spite of us earning the exact opposite of life, God extends mercy. And we read about that in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 and 5. Paul says this, but God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is the infinite, undeserved, unconditional grace of our triune God. We see in this passage his mercy, which is his withholding of what we justly deserve, namely the wrath of God, and his grace receiving the opposite of what we deserved, eternal life. This is the sovereign love and grace of our God (laughs) extended in Christ. But we need to ask this question this morning, Is this grace and grace alone? Or is this grace plus something that we bring to the table? Someone might say, maybe grace gets salvation started. Paul talks about grace. I believe with this, I agree with this passage, but is it ultimately grace alone or is it some mixture of grace and our works that will ultimately get us to heaven and get us to final salvation? That leads us to our second point this morning, the covenant of grace, the covenant of grace. 
that despite the clear teaching of passages like Ephesians 2, many have concluded that grace is indeed a big part of salvation, maybe even a necessary part of salvation, but there still remains some work for us to do, something that we bring to the table, something for us to merit in order to be finally justified before a holy God, a mixture of grace and works, a combination of law and gospel. This was, in many ways, the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church during the time of the Reformation. It is not only God's grace, an infusion of God's grace, but it's a mixture of our works with the grace of God that ultimately merits salvation. And sadly, in our day, this is no different. (laughs) Many, if you were to ask them how they were saved, would answer, I think, in a very similar way. Grace might begin the work of salvation, but our works complete it. Gospel constitutes our relationship with God, but the law regulates that relationship and will ultimately bring it to consummation. God starts it, but we finish it. But is that what scriptures teach? Is that how we are saved from our sins? And so this morning, we need to go back to the garden in order to understand this more clearly. We not only need to define grace rightly as demerited favor, but we need to rightly understand the relationship that God had with Adam in the garden in what we call the covenant of works. The covenant of works. And you might say, Kendall, that sounds like the opposite of grace. So just bear with me here for a moment. Before the fall in Genesis chapter 3, if you can think about this with me, It's very difficult for us to think about. There was no sin. (laughs) A pretty amazing thought, right? In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, in the beginning of chapter 3, there's no sin. There's no sin in God's creation. Adam and Eve were created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, very good, without sin or defect, made in the image of God, and in communion and fellowship with Him. No sin no fall, fellowship, and communion with the triune God. But Adam and Eve were mutable. They were able to change. They were able to fall. And God, in His kindness, as our confession says, He condescends and He enters into a relationship with Adam. We call it a covenant. He enters into a covenant with Adam that's sort of pictured in the two trees in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That if Adam would, to, would work and earn, oh, sorry, upon Adam's perfect and perpetual obedience, he would earn and merit eternal, unchanging, immutable life. Everlasting, eternal life. That's symbolized in eating of the tree of life. Not only for himself, but for all Adam represented. This is the covenant of works. That eternal life was to be merited. The law must be kept perfectly. The probation, the test put before Adam must be passed. Heaven, we could say, must be earned. Adam was to work, he was to obey God, and he would merit by his works eternal life. And you might say to yourself, what does this have to do with grace? Why are you talking about works? I I don't think we think about this very often, but before the fall into sin, before the fall itself, 
There was no sin, we've established that, and if grace is demerited favor, <laughs> there is no need for grace before the fall, right? God is kind toward Adam and Eve. He condescends in this covenant relationship with them, but we can say this, that there is no grace before the fall. There's no grace before the fall. That this covenant that God made with the first Adam was based on works. It was based on merit. Adam had to earn eternal life. And you might be thinking to yourself, that sounds like legalism. That sounds like, why are you talking about works? That sounds opposite or opposed to God's grace. And the answer is yes. It is opposite. It is a contrast to grace. But it is this truth that protects salvation by grace alone and points us to the finished work of Christ. That the scriptures are clear. There are two types of covenant in scripture. There are covenants of work and covenants of grace. There are covenants where the, where the, the blessing must be earned and there are covenants where the blessing is not earned but rather given of free grace that this covenant of works given to Adam in the garden was where blessing was to be given upon meritorious obedience. As Paul says in Romans chapter 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Right? If any of you have jobs, my boss is even here today, okay? If any of you have jobs, it's a covenant of works relationship. If you don't do your work... <laughs> You don't get paid. <laughs> you get fired, okay? But your wages that you receive are not a benevolent gift from your employer. They're the wages that you have earned. You have merited. You have obtained by this sort of covenant of works. Do this and receive the blessing. And that if Adam would have completed the work given to him by God, he would have earned, merited the blessing of eternal, unchanging life for him and all he represented. But as we know in Genesis chapter 3, Adam failed this work. He violated the covenant of works, and the curses of the covenant fell upon him and all he represented. That what the first Adam earned was not eternal life, but actually eternal death. And that because you and I are born in sin, born in Adam, we cannot earn God's favor or blessing or merit eternal life based on our works. This is very important for us to understand. Because we are fallen in Adam, we cannot earn eternal life by our works. After the fall, after the broken covenant of works, it is impossible for man to earn a right standing before God by his works. And I think it's only after seeing this broken and violated covenant of works that we can rightly understand God's covenant of grace, where the blessings and the benefits are not earned or merited by us, but are given freely as a gift. That the covenant of grace 
is not like the covenant of works where the blessings are earned by obedience, but the covenant of grace is where God bestows, where he freely gives the blessings and the benefits even in the face of our disobedience and our sin. That's exactly what we read in Ephesians chapter 2, where salvation is not earned by us, but it is earned by another and given freely to all he represents. This is what Paul will say in Romans chapter 4, verse 5. He says, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. He's saying it's the one who does not work, but believes that by faith in the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his perfect work of salvation, the many will be made righteous. The promised serpent-crushing seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15. This is the promise of God's covenant of grace, that someone would do what the first Adam failed to do. The first Adam failed to earn or merit eternal life. He failed to work and obey God perfectly and secure perfect righteousness But the second Adam did not fail. (laughs) He worked, he perfectly obeyed God, and he secured the benefits that we need. And he does not say, you need to go work in order to obtain them. He says, I'm going to give them as a gift. Simply believe in me. By faith in his work and the blessings of the covenant, they are given not as a principle of works, but as a principle of grace. Christ has fulfilled the covenant of works for his people and now purchased grace for us in the covenant of grace. This is grace and grace alone, not by our works, not by our merit. And we see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. What does he say? It is a gift. It is a gift of God. It is a gift of God. Not our own doing. There's nothing that we did before salvation to merit God's favor. We didn't clean ourselves up. We did not make ourselves more presentable. Paul says we were dead in our trespasses, but God in his grace made us alive. He enabled us to come to him and faith. And we did nothing after to complete our salvation. It is the gift of God, the special demerited grace of God that is to be received with the open hand of faith resting on Christ alone. We add nothing to our salvation. And this is why Paul can say in verse 9, so that no one may boast so that no one may boast. No one can say, it's because I was better. It's because I was smarter. It's because I was more intelligent. It's because I worked harder. I obeyed more. I was wiser. That's why God extended his grace to me. No, it is only the sovereign grace of God. The great leveler of human pride and boasting is the sovereign, unconditional, never-ending love and grace of God in Christ. But the third thing we need to look at this morning, we've seen salvation is by grace, and we just saw that it's by grace and grace alone, not by our works. But we need to look 
into eternity past to see what is the origin, what is the foundation of this grace. And that leads us to our third point this morning, the doctrines of grace. The doctrines of grace. That in all Scripture we see that, that this grace and love of God that is shown forth in the work of Christ for our redemption is not the origin or source of God's grace, but is rather the evidence of His eternal, unconditional love and grace toward His people. That the grace of God, we're going to look at three things this morning, is eternal, is unconditional, and is preserving. The grace of God is eternal, is unconditional, and is preserving. It is because of the eternal love of God for His people, that is why God sent His Son, right? That's what we read in John 3, 16. For God so loved that He sent His only Son. We read this in verse 4 of Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, that is why He sent Christ. This is the eternal electing love and grace of God. We read this morning in Ephesians chapter 1 that we are chosen in Him before the foundation of the world, predestined in love for adoption as sons. And in verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. This is all shown forth in the work of Christ. This was a profound quote that I heard this week from someone named Sinclair Ferguson. He said this, he said, God is not gracious to me because Christ died for me. Christ died for me because of God's grace for me. I'll say it again because it took me two times. (laughs) God is not gracious to me because Christ died for me. Christ died for me because of God's grace for me that the love and grace of God precedes Christ dying for His people, that this love of gr- and grace of God is eternal. It is unchanging, and it is sovereign in its purposes. So we saw the love of God is eternal, but we see, secondly, that this grace of God is unconditional and unmerited. It's not based upon us. It's not based upon our works or our effort. It's not because we were smarter or because we had done good deeds or because God saw that we would have faith, but as our confession says, but because of the most wise and holy counsel of His own will. Titus chapter 3 verses 4 and 5 says that Christ saved us not because of works done by us, but according to His own mercy. That no one can come before God and say, I contributed this to my salvation. Look what I did. Look what I contributed to being made right before God. What did Jonathan Edwards say? The only thing I contributed to my salvation is the sin that made it necessary for my salvation, right? We all come before God with sin-stained hands. That we've been justified not by our works, but by His grace. That man's works have nothing to do with obtaining a right standing before God. As one pastor says, our works are the basis of the problem, not the solution. 
Our works are the basis of the problem, not the solution. And so we don't come to God with our works as the basis of our justification, but we come empty-handed, receiving and resting upon Christ's work alone. Because if God's love and grace were conditional, if it were based upon us, you and I would be lost. It was based upon us to merit our salvation and to persevere to the end, we would be doomed. And so we see finally that the grace of God is preserving, that it is not only eternal, it is not only unconditional, but the grace of God is the preserving, keeping, and sustaining love for his people. That if it was up to us to keep us in the faith, we would fail. There's another famous preacher that said, if I could lose my salvation, I would. (laughs) I would find a way to mess up the grace of God, and we all would. But this grace is not a one-time infusion at the beginning of our Christian life and then left to our own devices, we're supposed to work our way toward the end. No, it is the preserving, never-ending, continual, sustaining grace of God that preserves and keeps His people to the very end. What did Jesus say in John chapter 10? No one is able to snatch them out of my hands. He will preserve His people and He will keep us to the end, but our Lord not only ordained the end of our salvation, but he also ordained the means by which we are preserved. And that leads us to our fourth and final point this morning, the means of grace, the means of grace. That our sovereign Lord has not only ordained the end of our salvation, but the means by which we obtain salvation. And it's just a profound thing to think about. Our sovereign Lord, who is all-powerful, who can do all things, in His infinite wisdom, He chose to use means to save and change and sustain His people. Not only the means of effectually calling His people by the proclamation of the gospel, by, by working of the Spirit, by justifying them, adopting them, and sanctifying them, and by His power keeping them unto salvation, but he also ordained the means of grace, those empowering things that he has given to us whereby we might be grown in grace. The word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer, empowering the God-ordained means of grace that God has given to us, his people. Taking the grace that Christ has purchased and bringing it to weary and sin-sick souls. This is the grace you and I need to be sustained on our wilderness journey. Not instruments that we use to get God's grace, but means God uses to bring us into communion and fellowship with Him. Strengthening our faith, sustaining us by His means of grace, and keeping us to the very end. This is salvation by grace from beginning to end. And so as we walk away this morning, there's really only one thing that we need to think about this morning, and my prayer is that we are gripped this morning by the grace of God, that our minds would be open to see and behold, as Paul says, the depths and the riches of the love and grace of God. Demerited favor 
in the face of our sin and rebellion. Us getting not only what we did not deserve, but what we deserved the opposite. Not based on our works or ability or power, not based on human will or, des- or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And I think there are many objections to this view of grace. Some of us might say, this grace is unfair. This grace is unfair, right? How can God save someone and pass over others? Isn't this unfair? I think a great place to go would be Romans chapter 9, where Paul says, who are you, O man, (laughs) to answer back to God, right? There's this creator-creature distinction that we need to maintain, that God is the infinite creator and wise counsel of his own will, and that we cannot question his ways, (laughs) that he, in his infinite wisdom, will do what is just and what is right. But someone might say, but I want God to give me what is fair. I want God to give me what is fair. And if fair is getting what we justly deserve, then God giving to us what we justly deserve would be sin. I mean, would be his punishment, right? If God were to give us what we justly deserve, we would all be lost. As we read in Romans chapter 6, the wages of our sin, what our sin earned is death. This is what is fair. But the next part of the verse, and thanks be to God for it, is that the free gift of God is eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the grace of God. It's not an infusion, it's a person. (laughs) It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Us getting what we do not deserve. But I think the final objection that you might hear someone say is, doesn't this undermine good works? Doesn't the grace of God undermine good works? Doesn't it give us a license to live however we want? And scripture is clear that the answer to that is no. Paul says, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? And the answer he says is, by no means. By no means. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were created for good works in Christ Jesus. But I think someone else could maybe say, won't that make you lazy? Doesn't the free gift of grace make us prone to laziness? Doesn't the free grace of God in the gospel cause us to not care about sanctification or about growing in holiness? And there's a great quote from a man named Richard Skibbs, a Puritan. He says this as he confronts people that might bring this objection. He says, Many adversaries of the grace of God quarrel with us because we preach justification by the free mercy and love of God in Christ. They say that this deadens the spirits of men so that they do not care about good works. But then he says this, But can there be any greater incentive and motive in the world to sanctification than to to consider what favor and mercy we have in Christ and how we have been justified and freed by the glorious mercy of God in Christ? And the answer to that question is, there cannot be anything greater. (laughs) 
That by seeing, he says this, by seeing in the glass of the gospel, the glory of God, we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. An excellent glass the gospel is. By seeing God's love in it, we are changed. It is by seeing the love and grace of God in his sovereign work for his people that we are changed, that we are transformed. It is out of the assurance and joy that we have in the gospel that propels us to gospel obedience. It is out of gratitude and thankfulness that motivates our obedience, not trying to earn God's favor. It is God's love, grace, and mercy that compels us to joyfully obey the commands of God, not a white-knuckled obedience out of fear of God. It is knowing that the sovereign, relentless grace and love of God will keep us, that empowers us for gospel obedience and brings true, lasting assurance. This is why the Apostle Paul can say in Philippians chapter 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is salvation by grace and grace alone. This is the eternal, unconditional, preserving love and grace of God, shown forth in the work of Christ in the covenant of grace, communicated to God's people in the means of grace, and empowered by the Spirit of grace. This is our salvation. And so we can say with the Apostle Paul, as he says in 1 Corinthians, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. May our boast be in God this morning and in his infinite grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your infinite love and grace that before the world began, before the foundations of the earth, your grace extended to us. We shone forth in the work of Christ on the cross, dying the death that our sin deserved, taking the curses upon himself that were earned by the first Adam, and also securing perfect righteousness for us in his active and his passive obedience, so that in God's covenant of grace, we might receive what Christ earned not seeking to earn our salvation, not seeking to earn our right standing before a holy God because it's impossible, but receiving what Christ has done with the open, soiled hands of faith so that we can truly say that our boast is not in ourselves, but our boast is in the Lord. And as each and every one of us feels this morning our weakness, we feel our frailty, we feel our proclivity towards sin to go back, to not follow in good works, but to follow after the, the things of this world. We feel this morning our acute weakness. And yet, what does the Apostle Paul say? That he can boast in his weakness, because in his weakness, 
the power of God is made perfect. And so this morning, may we not come puffed up in pride. May we not come thinking that we have it all together because we don't. May we come this morning boasting in our weakness because it is in our weakness that the power and grace of God is shown forth. And so this morning, we are reliant on your spirit. We have great need this morning to come before you humbly, not puffed up in pride, but coming as beggars, needing your grace this morning that has been won by Christ. Help us to trust in the work of Christ this morning, and may we come to rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered to us in the gospel. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.